going to be looking at Colossians 3, but I want to start by looking at uh, chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. It says, He has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the Son He loves. We have redemption, the forgiveness of sins in Him. He's transferred us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son He loves. Now look at verses 21 and 22, same chapter. It says, Once you were alienated and hostile in your minds because of your evil actions. That is, you were alienated from God and were hostile in your minds towards God because of your evil actions. Verse 22, But now he has reconciled you by his physical body through his death to present you holy, faultless, and blameless before him. Now look at chapter 2, verse 13. And when you were dead in trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with him and forgave us all our trespasses. So, we were under the domain of darkness and God rescued us from there. We were alienated from God. We were enemies of God, but God reconciled us to himself. We were spiritually dead in our trespasses and sins, and God made us alive and forgave us all our trespasses and sins. So we were captive. We were captives, but he rescued us. We were at war with God, but he made peace with us. He brought about peace. We were guilty, but he forgave us. We were dead, but he raised us to new life. And all of this was done through one person, Through his son, Jesus Christ, our mediator, our savior, our Lord. All of this was done through Christ. So there are two groups, presumably, two groups of people in this room today. There are two groups of people in the world. There are those who have been rescued, who are forgiven, who are at peace with God and alive to God. And then there are those who aren't, who are still captive to darkness, who are guilty, who are at war with God and who are spiritually dead. And the difference is whether you are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ or not. Okay? But for those of us who have been rescued, who are forgiven, who are at peace with God, who are alive to God, now what? Now what? God has done these great things for us in Jesus Christ. Now what does life look like? And that's what chapters 3 and 4 are about. And we're going to look at chapter 3 today. So let's look at chapter 3. I don't intend on preaching on the whole chapter, but I want to read through the whole chapter. So, beginning with verse... Chapter 3, verse 1. So, if you have been raised with the Messiah, seek what is above, where the Messiah is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on what is above, not on what is on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with the Messiah in God. When the Messiah, and of course we're talking about Christ here, when the Messiah Christ, who is your life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. So there's a heavenly mindset. But there's also actions. There's a lifestyle. Look at verse uh, 5. Therefore, put to death what belongs to your worldly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, God's wrath comes on the disobedient. And you once walked in these things when you were living in them, but now you must also put away all the following, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and filthy language from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self. You are being renewed in knowledge according to the image of your Creator. In Christ there is not Greek and Jew, circumcision and uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all 
and in all. Therefore, God's chosen ones, holy and loved, put on heartfelt compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, accepting one another and forgiving one another if anyone has a complaint against another. Just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. Above all, put on love, the perfect bond of unity, and let the peace of the Messiah, to which you were also called in one body, control your hearts. Be thankful. Let the Messiah, let the message about the Messiah dwell richly among you, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, and singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, be submissive to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and don't be bitter toward them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not exasperate your children so they won't become discouraged. Slaves, obey your human masters in everything. Don't work only when being watched in order to please men, but work wholeheartedly, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do it enthusiastically as something done for the Lord and not for men, knowing that you will receive the reward of an inheritance from the Lord. You serve the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for whatever wrong he has done, and there is no favoritism. Masters, supply your slaves with what is right and fair, since you know that you too have a master in heaven. So this is the answering the question, what does the new life look like? What does the Christian life look like? We've seen what, what God has done for us in Jesus Christ in chapters 1 and 2. In chapter 3, what, what, so, so what is this new life? What does it mean? Well, he starts off with the mindset, with the attitude, with the upward look. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. He starts off by saying, Seek the things that are above. If you have been raised with the Messiah, seek what is above, where the Messiah is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on what is above, not on what is on the earth. Jesus said that while we are still in the world, we are no longer of the world. We're in the world, but not of the world. Second Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 and 4 says that while it is true that we walk in the flesh, we no longer wage war according to the flesh. The weapons of our warfare are no longer of the flesh. As Christians, we are no longer of the earth. We are still on the earth, but we are no longer of the earth. We are of the heavens, so to speak. We are of the kingdom of God. So let's no longer be governed by the things of earth. Now, that does not mean that we no longer submit to earthly laws. That does not mean we we now have the freedom to uh, speed, for instance. That does not mean that we can break the laws of the land. But in fact... We obey the laws of the land for a different reason, don't we? We have a different motivation for obeying the laws of the land. Ultimately, it's because we serve God, and God's design is for us to obey the laws of our country. Those who don't know Christ, why do they keep the law? It's not to honor God. It's not to serve God. It's either to serve their country or in order not to get caught. Uh, Those are one of the two reasons. Um, But for us, we serve, we, we obey the laws of the land because God has called us to do so. What this text is indicating is that our agendas and our aspirations and our goals and our planning and our lifestyle are to be governed by Christ and are to be governed by our allegiance to him. If you are a Christian, live like a Christian. If you're a Christian, live like a Christian. The Bible says that our citizenship is in heaven, 
then we are to, to live as citizens of heaven, live by the expectations and conduct of heaven. Verse 2 says to set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things of the earth. Don't set your mind, for instance, on earthly riches and wealth. Don't be governed by riches and wealth, by having things, by buying things, by, by consuming things. Don't have a materialist uh, mindset. The nicest cars, the finest clothes, you know, the latest TV, the latest phone, uh, luxury watches, uh, nice jewelry, whatever. These, these are all things that are going to burn or rust. Matthew six nineteen to 21, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust, what? Destroy. But store up for your thing, store up for yourselves things in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves don't break in and steal. I used to listen to a song a long time ago. Uh, it's called, uh, I put away my idols. Um, and there was one lyric in it that always stuck with me. Uh, Cadillacs end up in the junkyard. That was the lyric. Cadillacs end up in the junkyard. Uh, that's why I put away my idols. Cause Cadillacs end up in the junkyard. Um, I'm amazed sometimes at what, uh, at what, what people collect, um, collections that people have. And I, you know, I think collections are nice. It's nice to have a, it's nice to be a hobby. It's nice to have a hobby. Um, unless they become an obsession. But, you know, think about, think about, for instance, stamp collectors. Uh, they, uh, and again, I'm not saying collecting stamps is a bad thing, but they, sp- they invest a lot of time into researching stamps and purchasing stamps and, they, stamps, and they allocate a lot of money to those stamps, and then they uh, purchase books and whatnot, and they arrange those stamps. Uh, all that, all those resources invested in that collection. Again, I'm not saying it's a bad thing, but ultimately, ultimately, where is that stamp collection going to end up in the end? Well, it's not going to stay together. It's not going to stay in that folio. Eventually, everything's going to burn up, right? <laughs> Eventually, uh, it's all going to be be undone. Uh, don't set your mind on earthly things. Earthly things don't just refer to material possessions, but they can refer to worldly values as well. Uh, things that the world values, like reputation or promotion or honor or recognition. What motivates you? Are you motivated by uh, worldly values or are you motivated by things that God values? For example, are you motivated by Jesus' definition of greatness? You want to be great? What's Jesus' definition of greatness? His definition of greatness is servanthood. Jesus said, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. Isn't that remarkable? Who's great in God's kingdom? Servants are great in God's kingdom. True servant-hearted servants. If you're a Christian, then your goals and aspirations should be biblical ones. Your mindset should be a biblical one. And biblical Christian living affects every area of life. Did you know that there's a virtually a Christian way to do everything? There's a God-glorifying way to do everything? And I base this on 1 Corinthians 10.31... Whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do it all for the glory of God. Those are the two activities that Paul singles out in that verse, whether you eat or drink, and whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. So have you thought about what a God-glorifying way of eating is? Because if there's a way to glorify God in these activity, when you eat, there's also a way to not glorify God when you eat. If there's a way to glorify God when you drink, there's also a way to not glorify God when you drink. 
Christianity and pleasing God, the Christian life, the Christian faith, it, it affects, it goes into all the nooks and crannies of life. Uh, it's not just the big things, but it's in the routine. It's in the d- details. It's not just in public. It's in private as well. Here are some other things to think about. Our Christian faith should affect such things as our attitudes, our thoughts, our desires. Our Christian faith should affect our habits. The fact that we belong to the kingdom of God should affect the way we relate to family, the way we relate to friends, the way we relate to neighbors, the way we relate to opposition, the way we relate to people who wait on us. It should affect our speech. It should affect our work ethic. It should affect our politics. It should affect our schedule. It should affect our spending. This is really uncomfortable. It should affect our responses to criticism. It should affect our responses to praise, our responses to bad news. It should affect our responses to good news. It should affect our responses when people when other people succeed and our responses when other people fail. It should affect how you play the game. Your Christian faith should affect your driving. Um, it should affect how you handle illness. It should ha- affect how you interact with physicians and nurses, and not just the good ones. <laughs> it should affect it. Okay, There should be a difference in the way the, a Christian relates to uh, a doctor or a nurse who they may think is treating them poorly than uh, a non-Christian who relates to a doctor or nurse who they think is treating them poorly. Every aspect of our lives should be affected by our faith. Verses 3 and 4 give us the reason for these instructions. Verse 3, for you have died and your life is hidden with the Messiah in God. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. First of all, the idea that you have died. Do you realize that as a Christian that you have died? When you believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, you died. The old you died. Second Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Right. You guys know all these verses. That's great. The old has gone. The new has come. If you're a believer, the old you is dead. You are a new person in Christ. And this isn't just a feel-good saying to, you know, pat you on the back, with, but there's no basis in reality. That's not what this is. This isn't just someone waving their hands and saying, you're a new person. <laughs> Receive this, you're a new person. That's not it. There's a, there's a fundamental change that has taken place when you put your faith in Christ. You've been born again, Jesus talks about in John 3. There's been a regeneration. There's been a transformation of your heart. Ezekiel talks about the fact that your stone, uh, your heart of stone has been taken away and you've been given a heart of flesh. You're a new person. You have died. The old you is gone. And now your life is hidden with Christ in God. That's what he says in verse 3. Your life is hidden. What does that mean? I think it partly means that you look like the same old you, but you're not the same old you. Who you are as a child of God is not obvious to other people, but as a believer, you're a child of the King. You're a child of the Creator. You are a member of the divine family, a son of God. Glory is in your future, great glory, a rich inheritance, a place at the, at the King's table. But right now, that's hidden. Right now, you still look like Cinderella before the ball. Plain and humble, dressed in rags. But the fact that your life is hidden with Christ also means that no one can touch you. That's another aspect of being hidden. 
uh, with Christ in God. Like when in the Old Testament, when uh, Athaliah, when Athaliah was on a rampage and killing all of her grandchildren so that they couldn't become king, um, what happened to young Joash? They took Joash and they hid him. Why did they hide him? They hid him to secure him, to keep him safe. Like when Moses was hidden for three months in a floating basket so that he would be safe. All right? We're, we're hidden with Christ. We're hidden with the Messiah in God. We are protected in God until we come into our full inheritance in heaven. And then verse 4. When the Messiah who is your life is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. One day you are going to appear with Christ in glory. If your faith is in Christ, you are going to appear with him in glory. This refers to the second coming of Christ and the resurrection. There is a date set. We don't know what it is. There is a date set when all believers will finally realize the glory and perfection for which we've been hoping for. All right. This transformation will come about not because of a fairy godmother, but because of a real live heavenly father who will bring about this transformation. You are a citizen of heaven now, so think and act like a citizen of heaven. That's what verses 1 through 4 are about. Uh, One preacher puts it this way. What we set our minds on determines our seeking and thus the direction of our Christian lives. What do you think about when you have nothing else to do? And of course... There are a number of temporal things that can weigh on our minds, illness, uh, you know, family members, whatnot. But these things aside, do our minds regularly go up to Christ and the things above? If they do not, we are in trouble, he says. The Bible says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So there's this, there's this heavenly mindset that should characterize uh, Christians. And going back to verse 3 for a moment, it says, you died and your new life is now hidden with Christ in God. What is this What is this new life? What is it to look like? Well, heavenly mindset, an upward orientation. But then look at verse 5. It says, therefore, put to death. There are things that we are to put to death. And in fact, verses 5 through 9 talk about various vices that we are to put to death, that we are to kill, that no longer have a part of who we are as believers. And then look at verse 12. Therefore, God's chosen ones, holy and loved, put on. So there are things we are to kill in our life, vices we are to kill, and there are virtues that we are to put on, that we are to clothe ourselves with. What is it that we are to put to death? And what is it that we are to put off, to take off? Verse 5, Therefore, put to death what belongs to your worldly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire and greed, which is idolatry. So first of all, it lists several words connected with sexual immorality. We live in a sex-soaked age, and so did the early Christians. Rome was not known for, it was not a bastion of prudence and self-control, if you know anything about history. Um, There are some who claim that it's impossible to be sexually pure in our day and age, but that's not what the Bible teaches. We are to put these things off. And then greed talks about greed. Some translations uh, use the word covetousness. Wanting that which is someone else's and that you can't have. Desiring what you can't rightfully have. Um, I think that much of our economy runs on covetousness and greed. Uh, Advertisers are often doing what? They're, they're inflaming our greed. Uh, 
they're inflaming our desire to have things, our, our materialist um, desires. What does the Lord want? The Lord desires contentment from us. Contentment is what we are to cultivate. And then look at verse 8. I will too as soon as I find it. There it is. But now you must also put away all the following. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and filthy language from your mouth. Verse 8 talks about anger and wrath and malice and slander. The opposite of what loving your neighbor is. These are things that, that hateful people do. You know, people walk on tiptoes around these kind of people, afraid to set them off. These kind of people love to hurt others, maybe in small ways, um, maybe just in the way they word things, or maybe in big ways. There's no grace. There's no criticism. Uh, there, there's, there's always criticism here, or worse. The delight in airing the faults of others. They love to talk about others' flaws, but struggle to see the good in others. Don't be that kind of person. Put that kind of stuff off. We're to put these things off. Verse 8 further mentions uh, obscene talk. Holman Christian words it as uh, filthy language. Obscenity should not be a part of our language. Put that kind of talk away. Verse 9 talks about lying. Uh, we should put off lying to others. I was watching a YouTube video of a, uh, someone who used to be with the CIA. She was teaching people how to recognize when a person is lying to you. And I didn't watch it for very long. But uh, she made a statement uh, at the beginning, she said uh, that normal people tell, lie, tell uh, lies about ten times a day. Uh, and I, I thought, ah, that's, not, that's not true. That, that's, that shouldn't be true of believers. And I don't think it is true of uh, believers who are sincerely walking before the Lord. But it's not. <laughs> that doesn't mean that believers don't lie. And if that's a problem for you, that's something that you need to put off as well. That's a vice that we are to put off. Verses 9 and 10 reiterate that we are new people. Look at verse 9 again. Do not lie to one another since you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self. You are being renewed in knowledge according to the image of your creator. You are being renewed. In your conversion to Christ, you have put off your old self and have put on your new self. So don't live the old way. Live the new way. Be who you are not who you were. If you are a Christian, there should be a constant renewal going on as you grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. Verse, in, uh, verse t- 10 indicates that we are, to be, we are being renewed in knowledge after the image of God. We are becoming more and more like God. We are becoming more and more like Christ. Listen to 2 Corinthians four sixteen and 17. This is what he says. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day, so that our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Second Corinthians 3.18, And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. So the more you walk with the Lord, the more you are being becoming more and more like Christ. The more you're becoming more and more like God. These earthly vices should be coming more and more foreign to you, more and more uncharacteristic of you, more and more distasteful to you. Then look at verse 11. In Christ there is not Greek and Jew, circumcision and uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all and is in all. Not only are the old habits and the vices to be done away with through Christ, but the old divisions between us, 
are also to be done away with. Differences that kept us apart should no longer keep us apart. Differences may still be recognized, but not for the purpose of discrimination or prejudice. They certainly don't present barriers to the kingdom of God anymore. The Bible is clear that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I've shared with you before uh, when we were in China the first time when we were adopting Anna that uh, we walked into a, uh, a store there and I saw the guy's Bible on the table and I said, oh, are you a Christian? He said, yes. I said, I'm a Christian too. And uh, he said his name was Jordan, so I crossed over to Jordan. And he gave me... <laughs> and he gave, and he gave me a hug and he said, we are brothers. And I said, that's exactly right. There, there's no, there's no difference. You know, and then I said, he asked me what I, what I did. I said, I'm a pastor. He says, I'm a deacon or no. He, no, he said, I'm an usher. I'm an usher. Yes, that's great. My brother, my brothers and sisters all over the world. It's fun to go to other places and meet your brothers and sisters whom you're going to dwell with for eternity. All these, all these distinctions, all these barriers drop away. In Christ. And then verses 12 through 14. Take off those. Take off those vices. You know, take off those vices. These divisions no longer divide us. And now put on these virtues. Verse 12. Therefore God's chosen ones, holy and love, put on heartfelt compassion. The, the ancient world was merciless. The maimed and the sickly and the aged were discarded. The mentally ill were subjected to inhumanities. But Christianity brought compassion, and it still does. Um, I've got a couple quotes. I'll just read one right now from William Barclay. He says, It is not too much to say that everything that has been done for the aged, the sick, the weak in body and in mind, the animal, the child, the woman, has been done under the inspiration of Christianity. I'll read the other one, too. Throughout history, Christians have led led the way in supporting widows and orphans, building hospitals, and providing disaster relief on every continent in the world. Wherever a beachhead for the gospel of Jesus Christ has been established, medicine, education, and relief for the poor have followed. Whether the need is hunger, lack of drinking water, illiteracy, sickness, homelessness, or anything else that causes misery, Christians have been at the forefront of caring for the needs of the world. And in our own private lives, we are to demonstrate compassion towards others as well. Then he goes on to talk about kindness. You know, having a gracious sensitivity towards others. George Bernard Shaw uh, once wrote a letter to Winston Churchill, and he said, uh, by the way, this is an illustration of lack of kindness, by the way. Uh, Shaw writes to Churchill, he says, Enclosed are two tickets to the opening night of my first play. Bring a friend, if you have one. <laughs> Churchill wrote back, Dear Mr. Shaw, Unfortunately, I'll be unable to attend the opening night of your play due to a prior engagement. Please send me tickets for a second night, if you have one. <laughs> You know, little jabs, little jabs. Kindness involves the absence of these little jabs. The original uh, word in the Greek for this, uh, for kindness, was used to describe wine, a wine that had uh, grown mellow with age and had lost its harshness. You know, as Christians, we're to lose our harshness. And then he talks about humility, kindness, put on heartfelt compassion, kindness, humility. You know, this is the absence of self-exaltation. We're part of uh, we're a part of John and Jackie's uh, small group Bible study on Sunday nights, and uh, uh, a few weeks ago, uh, Grace, in the middle of the Bible study, Grace Golicki, who is two two years old, 
she comes running in with big sunglasses and she's yelled, look at me, look at me, look at me. <laughs> That's the absence of self-exaltation. That, that, that is self-exaltation. It's really cute on a two-year-old. Uh, maybe not for John and Jackie, I don't know. But, uh, but when an adult does it, you know, in, in, even, uh, in, in even subtle ways, you know, it, it's not appealing. Uh, humility, the absence of, of self-exaltation, serving others, building others up and rather than self-promotion. Put on kindness, humility, gentleness, the willingness to make allowance for others, a soft touch. Um, and then put on patience as well, long-suffering in the face of insult or injury. These are, these are all characteristics of Jesus, the compassion, the humility, the patience, and so forth. And these are communal values. These are things that, we, that are exhibited, especially we, when we are living in community with others. Um, you don't talk about a compassionate hermit, for example. Um, but the passage then goes on in verse 13, accepting one another and forgiving one another. Accepting one another, I think, is a little too weak. Um, better are other translations that talk about bearing with one another. Bearing with one another. I like the way the New Living Translation puts it. Uh, make allowance for each other's faults. You know, we do that. We should be doing that in our families and in our churches, making allowance for other people's faults. Uh, not necessarily for sin, but faults. You know, uh, I, I put up with you, you put up with me. <laughs> I want you to put up with me because I have faults. Making allowance for one another's faults and living gracious, graciously. That there needs to be forgiveness. He talks about forgiveness there. The act of giving up resentment against someone who has wronged, who has wronged you. Giving up the desire to punish that person. No malice towards him or her. You are ready to do him or her good as if there had been no wrong in the first place. And what's the reason given? The reason given there is in verse 13, just as the Lord has forgiven you, you must also forgive. And finally, verse 14, the cardinal virtue, above all, put on love, the perfect bond of unity. And, and the chapter goes on, and if we had more time, we'd, take, we'd look at the rest of the chapter because it continues to talk about what this new life looks like. Verse 17, let me just draw your attention to verse 17 because I think it especially sums it up. Verse 17, whatever you do in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Again, the idea that all of life is to be lived in front of Christ and for Christ and according to Christ's ethic and in a manner to please Christ and in Christ-like manner. All of life is to be lived that way. What does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to have a new life in Christ? It's a heavenly mindset. It's putting off the old way, the way that the world lives, and putting on the way that we are to live now, the godly way, the Christ-like way, the way that Christ lived out before us. Let's pray.